we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On previous episodes of Buffalo What's Next, we've taken a look at how the arts can bring racial and social justice issues to light. It's a frequent focus of the Buffalo Arts Studio in the TriMain Center, where they recently held a panel discussion, Making Space, Creative Strategies for Promoting Ecological and Economic Justice in Urban Planning. WBFO has offered the chance to record the session, and today we'll hear some of that discussion. We start with architectural designer Justina Jama. Her unique project at Buffalo Art Studio made castings of many of the historic and, in many cases, crumbling structures of Buffalo's east side. That work also provided insight into the real living conditions of some of the city's poorest neighborhoods. I was here in the 2021 cycle for the Activism in the Arts um, program. Um, that fall and um, the work I did was um, about exploring uh, the post-industrial landscape of Buffalo specifically for this past exhibit the east side community and uh, a big part of the project was um, about engagement um, with the community so um, I went through legal channels to kind of uh, cast these um, misused or otherwise uh, um, seemingly abandoned buildings and met a lot of um, neat people along the way who kind of have uh, similar outlooks on what they want to see in the future um, on the Buffalo's east side um, and uh, you know starting some interesting conversations on um, what we can do in that community architectural designer Justina Jama. For these panel discussions, Buffalo Art Studio looks to bring together a wide array of perspectives. Certainly the arts are represented and so is scholarship. And for that aspect, they welcomed Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor Jr., professor in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Buffalo. I'm both a historian and an urban planner. So in many respects, I, I think of myself as a time traveler I'm as comfortable in 1820 as I am in 5050, and we haven't even gotten there yet. I say 5050 because planning is, is always uh, about the future. And my work itself centers around the processes of change over time, uh, with a particular emphasis on how we build cities. And my working ongoing hypothesis is that in the United States, uh, the way we build cities is racist and uh, is based on class exclusion and the dehumanization of people. Uh, we have no respect for human dignity in this country and that's reflected 
in the way in which we build cities. And I say we have no respect for human life or dignity because if we did, the only way we would be able to see the conditions on the east side is to go to some kind of history museum where they would be, those kinds of historical artifacts would be located. The, the past year in, uh, in, on, on Buffalo's east side, I think has been characterized by three kinds of trends. On the le one level, I I've seen a continuing awakening of the residents in those communities. Um, uh, and people have started grassroots movements to rebuild and transform their, their communities and their neighborhoods. And there's been a, a higher level of organization down on the ground and inside of the neighborhoods and the communities that, that's there. Uh, and we see it at all locations and in all places. I'm also the chairman of the board of the King Urban Life Center, which is located on uh, Genesee Street in the Broadway Fillmore area. And even in that place, which has really been devastated by Buffalo City building process, we see that. Started working with groups in, in a number of different locations and places. And I'm sure Denise will talk about the things that are going on in the Fruit Belt. That's at one level. At another level, we have seen a growing interest in people wanting to invest on the east side. And uh, right now, based on our count, over $2 billion are either being planned and implemented uh, in projects that are being developed. Uh, and that doesn't even include uh, the governor's billion dollars for the coverage of a certain part uh, of the east side. So we see dollars flowing in, into the east side. Then we see some really bad things, mostly coming from City Hall, mostly coming from greedy entrepreneurs. And, and these things are, are taking two forms. One is the emergence of all these symbolic projects. And I say a project is symbolic because it's designed to create hope and possibility in a moment when they know nothing is going to happen. It's a game. And so we say these symbolic projects because they will never lead to the structural transformation of these communities. They're full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The other dimension is that white folks in their ingenuity have found a way to turn the east side into a big jobs program for white folks. Understand it. When we talk about two, maybe three billion dollars being invested on the east side, 
We must ask the question, who gets the contracts? Who gets the jobs? And they will mostly be white folks. And those dollars will flow through the black community like water through a sieve on route to the suburban communities where they will, in fact, multiply and produce greater jobs and greater opportunities. So with all of this money coming in, we see folks out in the suburbs popping champagne corks and lighting cigars because this is the beginning of a good time for them in City Hall. Is the architect of all of that. I better stop now. <laughs> Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor, Jr. We'll be hearing more from him later in the program. Now, one of the city's grassroots activists, Denise Barr of the Fruit Belt Homeowners Association. Interesting conversation. I was talking with a young woman today who I like a lot. And she was talking about a project that they're looking to do, you know, in the neighborhood. And she was very excited. And it's, I, I tried to relate to her the fact that my neighborhood has had so many broken promises and broken dreams. You know, it feels a lot like when I come out of my house or your, when you come out of your house and you see how the leaves have fallen and they're just scattered all over the place. And they're really pretty, right? But they don't really serve any purpose once they fall off the tree. And they just move and they scatter as they want to. And you can't really do anything with them and pick them up and put them to another location where they blow around somewhere else. That's what it feels like a lot for us. There's all of these things that have been promised, all of these dreams and hopes over generations that have just fallen down onto the ground and scattered around our feet. And we have to just try to shuffle them around and move around them and keep on going. I always say to people, you know, I know for people that don't live in black communities, they see things in the news about crime. The reality of the situation is that we are always being used for someone's figment of imagination to create a situation where they benefit off of us. It's generational, it's not new, but it still is painful. I talk specifically about the Fruit Belt because that's where I live, that's my hood. That's where my people are. I have neighbors that were there when my family moved in and that's been more than 75 years ago at this point. There's a woman that lives across the street from me that I've known almost my whole life. We live in a neighborhood where people have, some people have been born in the house they live in all their lives. You know, some people, have, have just, you know, they've owned a house since they were young and that's where they planted themselves. And in my community, much as how I've raised my own children, I have told them this is not a commodity. This is not something you get to buy and sell and just trade away. People have had to maintain these properties with sweat equity. It's taken a lot 
to hold on to these properties and you just don't sell that. So, you know, talking about all of these things that are supposed to be coming, all the pie in the sky, <laughs> the real is that as I travel through this country, I just came back from Atlanta where I was in the midst of 200 young black people who are farmers. They are going back to the land and they are learning to grow food for themselves and for their communities to survive. Because we know that all the conversation about the food chain is broken and there's lack of transportation. We know what that means. It's coded language for us that if we don't get ourselves together and learn how to grow something for us, we are going to starve. We are having the hardest time now just to hang on to what we have. And I'm just being real with you because that's what I do. I'm telling you that in our threads for social justice, we are hearing that by this time next year, you're gonna see homelessness like you have not seen before. And anywhere you go across this country, you see it already in vast amounts. It's unimaginable that people have to live like that. But that's how they have to live because the government considers that if you are a low-wage worker, if you're a person that doesn't earn enough money, if you're an older person, if you're a person of color who hasn't gained status, you are collateral damage. And white folks fall in that category with us if they're also poor. That's just real. There are people that are literally sleeping in the streets downtown, have been there for years, and have nowhere to go. There are people in our city that are starving. They have no food. You know, if we can look out our front doors and understand that right where you live, there's a child that's right in your neighborhood that is not gaining enough food, they don't have enough access to be able to have a healthy, normal life. That's the only thing that matters. And if we're not paying attention to that, then we're really not doing justice to anything. Just wanted to stress that uh, the, the kind of homelessness that uh, Denise was talking about is, is driven by the hard reality that Buffalo's rate of eviction is the highest in, in New York State, the highest in New York State. And again, that goes from the, the kinds of policies that we see going down and the kind of death and dying and hardships that she was mentioning. That's what I was talking about when I said we have no, we don't deal with human dignity. And in the United States, we do not believe that human life is, is, is precious. We believe that some people's lives are important and precious, but others are the throwaway uh, people. On Buffalo What's Next, we're hearing some of the comments and insights provided during a recent panel discussion at the Buffalo Arts Studio. The panelists were also asked to look to the future. UB professor Matt Kenyon is also an artist and his sculpture reflects on the driving forces behind the emerging housing crisis. And I'm in my fifth year in Buffalo. I moved here uh, with my wife, Laura Maris, uh, about five years ago. I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the central sculpture in the exhibition that I 
put together with uh, Jason Ferguson, one of my colleagues from Eastern Michigan. The central sculpture is called Kicking the Ladder, and it's a brand new piece that um, is a variation on a project called Tide. Um, and so inside the Champagne Tower uh, are tiny little sculptures of um, modeled after actual houses um, from the west side of Buffalo where I live and also in um, Baton Rouge, Louisiana where my family lives. And in 2016, my family uh, and a large part of the Baton Rouge community were flooded um, by a storm. Uh, it wasn't a hurricane, it was one of these new types of storms that just sort of parks itself over uh, a, a part of the city that uh, previously hadn't really flooded. and. Uh, proceeded to flood the uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of homes. The negative impacts of that um, continue to this day. And so uh, in response to that event, uh, in thinking about the um, impending housing crisis uh, that is really intersectional with the climate crisis uh, that we're all uh, experiencing, wanted to create a sculpture that talked about uh, the sort of mythologies about trickle-down economics, right? This idea, this false idea that um, you know, if you give the wealthy enough money that some of it will trickle down. And uh, I prefer, there's another story to it, another metaphor, uh, it's the story of the horse and the sparrow. Uh, and that is, if you feed a horse enough oats, some of it will pass down to the sparrows on the street. And I think you know, that's a little more, more accurate uh, story uh, of our economic situation. Uh, but anyway, so the houses are cast out of a material that has the same refractive index as water, and uh, so they effectively disappear. Um, and uh, what I think, you know, I've seen and we continue to see is that after uh, these um, climate events that the media moves on to the next tragedy, and, um, and the people who have been negatively impacted are left uh, you know, the real trickle down is the negative externalities of these, um, the housing crisis and the climate crisis. And I'm really happy to be on this panel with all these really great people. Back to the question. We have to liberate our minds and rethink how we build cities in order to deal with the kinds of issues that we're, we're talking about of abandonment, of the way in which they build cities. I mean, like right now, with the billions of dollars that I'm talking, was talking about earlier that are being invested on the east side, those projects are meaningless because none of them are connected to neighborhoods and communities. They're just site-based projects uh, with limited visions. The way you're supposed to do that kind of work is you have a neighborhood and then on the basis of, of, of that neighborhood and deep interactions with all of the people who live in the neighborhood, you generate an idea of the place you want to create. And when you go about planning and development in that way, and then if you anchor it around a notion of common resources, we call it the common. People need to gain control over those resources. The hard reality is that on Buffalo's east side, black people and others that live there, we don't own and control the land on which neighborhoods and communities are being built. 
Somebody else owns and controls that land. The other fact is that the community is the site of intense predatory investments. It's a lie that the east side is a site of disinvestment. That's just a lie. I'll give you two concrete examples. The state, in scattering all of its lottery machinery around, sucks some $32 million a year out of east side. Now, folks will say, well, why are the people paying the lottery in the first place? If you ask somebody on the east side, they'll smile and laugh. And you say, you only got a one in a million chance of winning. And they'll say, and if I don't play, I got no chance to get the resources to make my life better. So one in a million is better than none. So the, the, the point that I'm making is we can't do these things the way we are currently building cities. Uh, right now, all over the east side, including the fruit belt, the mayor has turned vacant land into a commodity. In the fruit belt, Reverend Chapman bought three lots for a project he was going to develop. I'll let Denise evaluate the project. <laughs> but the city charged him $90,000 for three unkept vacant lots that are appraised at only about $16,000, and that's an inflated price. Then all over the city, so what I'm saying is th those are common goods, resources. The Fruit Belt ought to own and control them. And this way we get the resources that we would need to develop the community in a, in a, in a just way. All I know is that we have to try to preserve what we have, what we can hang on to. We have to fight together. When I say we, I'm talking about the alliances that I work with. I'm talking about the people that really strive together to bring a conversation that says there's been enough damage done, even to the point of talking about the expressway. You know, it took me a long time to understand that this was something that happened across the nation. This wasn't just something that happened to my community. It felt personal because it happened to us. But this happened to communities of color all across the nation, that communities were divided for white flight. And so the damage that has been done from things like that. You know, we're fighting right now over this stadium. Well, the Bills played in my neighborhood originally at the rock pile, right up the street from where I live, right? I don't want to go into the long and the short of how I feel about that, but I'm just saying, you know, there's the value system because you up and left, you took your success with you, and now people that live on the east side of Buffalo that live in the fruit belt can't even afford to go to the games. And if they had a ticket to go, when they get in there, they can't afford to buy anything. That's not right. Transportation, I mean, there's a variety of things that are working together. You can't look at it as just one thing. 
all of these things are damaging communities in the city of Buffalo, the east side and the west side and all over the place, right? It's, it's just one big well-functioning oil machine and we have to be able to stand back. At some point, you know what, I keep telling people, they're coming for us, at some point they're coming for you too. Don't be comfortable, because wherever you live, if they haven't looked at it yet and seen how they can make a profit of it, they're coming. They're gonna find a way to get to you just like they got to where we are. So, you know, I, I, I'm about trying to build relationships and let people know. You know, we have to be able to protect what we have left. It's our city. It's supposed to be our city, and we should have a right to have some say in terms of what should happen and what shouldn't in, in, in building and structures in communities. All I know is that when you come for us, you're going to have to come for me. God bless you. Denise Barr of the Fruit Belt Homeowners Association. She was part of the recent panel discussion at Buffalo Art Studio, Making Space, Creative Strategies for Promoting Ecological and Economic Justice in Urban Planning. She was joined by architectural designer Justina Jama, UB's Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor Jr., and artist and UB professor Matt Kenyon. Do you absolutely love Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, PBS NewsHour, great performances, and other amazing shows on WNED-PBS, but you're not always in front of your TV when they're on. Don't miss them. You can stream the channel live wherever you are in Western New York by visiting wned.org live or use the WNED-PBS app. WNED-PBS can go everywhere you go with the WNED-PBS app. Go to the app to watch shows like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, Frontline, and Compact Science. Even watch on the go with the WNED PBS live stream and a 24-7 stream of WNED PBS kids. You can also see the full television schedule and what's on right now from the app. Download the WNED PBS app wherever you get your apps. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot and your money will support high quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. Listen to Buffalo What's Next weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on WBFO or on the WBFO app. Use the Talk to Us feature to leave your questions and comments. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning. This is Dave Debo for the balance of the program. 
We will be with the Reverend Kaiser Pointer from Agape Fellowship Baptist Church on Northland Avenue in Buffalo. He does something really interesting each year. He walks through Jefferson Avenue with Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor from UB and a bunch of University at Buffalo medical students. Every year he does the exercise to sort of uh, show them some of the things that you wouldn't necessarily see on Jefferson. And by you, I mean, quite frankly, the white gaze wouldn't necessarily see on Jefferson. The idea is that if incoming medical students have a recognition of the problems and the things they're seeing, then it's going to be that much easier for them to have empathy toward the people they need to have empathy for. So today, for the rest of the program, we're going to talk about that. We're going to try to recreate that tour just a little bit. Reverend Pointer, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a real privilege to be with you, as always, Dave. Tell me about where you go on this little trip. Well, um, the medical school is on the corner of Main and High. And um, High Street actually runs from Main to Genesee. And about halfway down is Jefferson Avenue. Um, It's only a few blocks from Jacobs. Um, And so what we want students to know and, and to discover and learn is, you know, when you're giving medical advice, um, who are you giving it to? And what are the circumstances that those people live in? Because um, your medical advice doesn't mean anything if they can't execute it. And so the whole point of the walking tour is to help them understand what is the built environment that people come from. And when you tell people get exercise, is that possible? Is the built environment, and I'm asking this somewhat rhetorically, obviously, is the built environment an obstacle to health? Oh, absolutely. Um, built environment, well, well, let me put that in really wide perspective. Buffalo is a old Rust Belt city. So consequently, the built environment is old. Um, you know, water lines and sewage lines in Buffalo are old lead pipe. So... All of our water is coming through those lines. Um, and it, everyone will tell you, well, it, it doesn't affect it. Well, you don't know. Right. You have no idea what it affects. But you do know that there is no safe amount of lead ingestion. Um, not so much, and I'm not really concerned about you and I, Dave, uh, but I am concerned because we know all of the research says there's no safe amount for children. Then, then you add to that that structures in this city dwellings that people live in on average are more than 89 years of age in the city of Buffalo and old houses have old house problems. I spoke a while ago to Dr. Myron Glick who runs the Jericho Road Community Health Center and he had something interesting to say that um, as part of their screening when a new refugee comes to their practice they will do a lead screening and these people often move into substandard housing and a month or two later, he does another lead screening and finds the levels just go up incredibly. Levels Bingo. that they wouldn't have necessarily had in Africa or Afghanistan or wherever they're coming from, but levels that suddenly escalate as soon as they start living in the poorer areas of Buffalo. And so when you are talking with medical students, um, their concern is health and how people are living. But they have to know where people are and what the structures they're living in. So old houses have the problems of old houses. Lead, lead lead-based paint, um, radon, 
the other inert gases, carbon monoxide, I mean, asbestos. So you name it, there <laughs> in that dwelling is all kinds of hazards that impede good health. Is my premise correct that they don't see these things unless you point them out? Uh, do the scales eventually fall off their eyes? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, because most medical students are middle class and upper middle class. Um, you have very few poor kids going to medical school. Um, I mean, there are a few, but that's Which just in not... itself could be an issue we talk about. Oh, it ahead. is an issue. Okay. Um, but, but that in and of itself means that these are young people who, by and large, have never seen a substandard dwelling. So they don't even know what that is. And they've never lived in a neighborhood where you say get exercise and you look at the sidewalks and we live in Buffalo and so snow covers the ground five months of the year. Where are they going to exercise? And then you compound that by the fact that in those neighborhoods um, there is no YMCA, there is no gym. There is no fitness center. So where are they going to get this exercise? What else do you show them? Are there things that are, again, uh, I I, I hate to use uh, uh, a cliche, but are there things outside the white gaze or at least outside their gaze that you point to beyond housing that makes them say, wow, I just I didn't think of that? Well, sure. Um, You know, asthma and COPD and the whole spectrum are a huge concern. And in cities... Um, emissions, um, and I know that, you know, this is a huge political thing, but it really isn't politics. This is really simply about health. And so in cities, you have these emissions because you have automobiles, automobiles, automobiles. Now, you have cars, buses, trucks, and they're in the city all day long. And so they are giving the emissions off all day long. Look around. Where are the trees? Our trees, bushes, shrubs, and planted environment readily available and obvious. And often they aren't. Um, and look, part of, you know, when I was a kid growing up, there were trees everywhere. And, and I'm a Buffalo boy. So, you know, you would fly into Buffalo and you would only know you were in the city because you could look at the downtown skyline. And skyline, see the canopy. And yeah. see that canopy. The canopy of trees in Buffalo. The first time I flew in 1972, the canopy of trees. I didn't believe I was coming into Buffalo because I'd never seen it from the air. From the air. So when I looked down, um, it took the longest time to see something that was built that wasn't covered by trees. That's not the Buffalo we fly into today. Right, right. Dutch elm disease did a lot of the damage there. A lot of damage and then multiple storms. But then I think you could argue... That the replacement efforts, if, if, if most of our discussion here often is so focused on disinvestment in the east side, I think we can probably argue that, okay, Dutch Elm took the trees out, storms took the trees out, where have the trees been replaced? Exactly. And, and when you're talking about the poorest neighborhoods, trees have not been replaced. I live in University Heights. I'm, I'm a member of the block club. Our block club, after the 2006 storm, the October storm, the one no one talks about now because right. we've had 1,200 storms between then and now. By comparison, it wasn't By, a storm. Yeah, right. Exactly. It was, and, <laughs> We're in Buffalo News, we deal. in a couple of days, it was 80 degrees. So we, yeah. all, we all forget it quickly. But that storm really decimated trees across the city. 
on my street, on Minnesota Avenue, we have made a concerted effort over the last decade and a half to replant every year. Um, so we have trees that have replaced trees that were decimated by the October storm and had to come down. We intentionally put them back. But we are a block club of um, well-educated, middle-class people, and we just said, look, this street looks terrible. <laughs> we need to fix this. So we went to trees and planted. So the we that replaces those trees are the residents. It's not a That's right. It's, it's not, not a program of any sort. No. Okay. We did it. We decided that this was a priority and trees are pretty expensive. A sapling is about a hundred bucks. Um so if you're talking to a poor family, they're not about yeah. to spend a hundred dollars on a tree. Um and they don't really understand why do I need to do that. But trees are we are in a symbiotic relationship with plants. They take away all of those particulates that we talk about that come from carbon emissions from automobiles. Um, because look, let's just be true. Most of us are not driving EVs. Right. We're driving old fashioned internal combustion gas engines. Engines, excuse me. Yeah. There's a reason too, if we're talking about trees, there's a reason why the fruit belt is called the, the fruit, fruat belt. belt. That's right. Because once upon a time, there, there were, were fruit trees there. everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and even when I was a kid growing up in the fruit belt, because um, I grew up right on Carlton Street. So when I was a kid, there were apple trees, there were peach trees, there were orange trees. Those streets are not named by accident. Right. There were grape um, vines and, and shrubs. Um, so, and, and, and often, and, and, and you not only do you have the relationship that they take away carbon dioxide and other particulates that are not healthy for human beings, trees actually thrive on those, but they also gave us something else that we often don't have. They gave us fruit sure. all year okay. long. And as kids, we often didn't need to go home. We could just stop in somebody's yard and raid the tree and be good to go and yeah. go back to doing whatever we were doing as kids. And nobody in the neighborhood cared. I was going to say, as long as you run fast enough, you were okay. Well, no, no. They didn't even care because um, what we didn't eat fell off the tree, and that means they had to clean it up so to keep their lawns. So they were happy to have They you. were all too thrilled. All right. And they would just say, just don't get hurt. Yeah. That was the that was the strength. You're climbing the tree, don't get hurt. What else do you point out to these medical students along the journey? Well, we point out that um, schools are um, in the in in the fruit belt and and along Jefferson Avenue. Right now, there are five schools. We point out that those schools are there. Why is that important? Because schools are where young people begin their journey to replace us. And I really need some young person to come along and do what I do because I have, Dave, I have no intention of doing this until I die. That's simply not going to work for right. me. And someone has to do what I'm doing. Someone has to do what you're doing. So we point out schools because schools are critically important to the beginning of the journey. And how do we prepare young people to be in those schools? And what is the relationship between the school and the neighborhood that it's in? You just went where I thought you would go. The neighborhood school doesn't necessarily exist the way it did once upon a time. 
But there is also an increasing movement to make sure that schools are, to some degree, neighborhood centers, places for those wraparound services that aren't just reading and writing and arithmetic. Those are some of the things, because um, a lot of assets have been divested out of the poorest communities in our in our city um, over decades. Um, a lot of it because there were adverse policies that were put in place. Um, um, Post-World uh, War II, those policies were not dismantled. Those are policies that were largely put in place in the 1920s and 30s, and often as a result of the Great Depression, we've not dismantled any of them. You're talking redlining. I'm talking about redlining and other policies that, I mean, planning, city planning is done decades out. And so projections about what will and will not be there are already in play right now for, say, 2050. And we're not talking about that in neighborhood meetings, but we should be. Attitudinally, talk about what these students experience. Is it truly a revelation? Oh, gosh, Reverend Pointer, I had no idea. Well, one of the things that happens in in the class that we teach at the medical school, the, it's a clinical practice of medicine one class. So it's connected directly to what students need to learn to become clinicians, and it's part of what they need to be able to pass the boards at the end of the second year. Mm-hmm. So it's a critically important exercise, and yes, they are learning. And not only are they learning, but what we are learning as we're looking at the data from the time we've been teaching this class, is that they become the bright scholars and leaders in their class. I want to go back to something you said earlier in the program, the idea that poor kids obviously don't go to medical school. It costs money. Right. Um, Can something be done to at least recruit more of them to the field? Oh, yeah, easily. Um, We've got to be intentional, though. It cannot be um, someone saying, oh, yeah, I hear you. That's sad. And then go away. No, we have to be intentional. We have to deliberately insist on creating pipeline programs that actually give kids the kind of support early because, you know, to go to medical school, you really have to be pretty sharp in math and science. Yeah. You also probably need to have an interest, which I imagine to some degree comes from a role model. Oh, absolutely. Um, Someone said long before we got here that it's very difficult for the mind to conceive what the eye has not seen. So it's difficult for students to imagine themselves being something they've never seen. Yeah. And they've never seen a black physician. Um, It's hard to imagine being one. They've never seen a black attorney, a black judge. It's hard to imagine being one. So we've got to make sure that young people are exposed to the kind of role models early and as early and often as possible so that they can dream for themselves. And then, look, let's just help them with their dream. And similarly, you expose these students that you take on the walk to the conditions that they would be encountering. Do you encounter any people? Do you, do you chat Inten- with folks? Intentionally. Okay. We intentionally There's that word again. <laughs> we intentionally set up some community conversations with members of the community. Every student in the class has a family who lives in the community who mentors them through the entire semester. Wow. They spend time with them. They sit at the dinner table with that family. They talk with them about their health and their health issues and and, and the whole family. Mother, father, children. So they get a complete wrap around and an immersion. 
What do you think they learn? What What is the biggest comment or topic that uh, gets discussed around that dining room table? Well, the most important thing is they learn how alike they are. You know, one of the things that eating does is it takes away all issues of superiority because um, hunger doesn't care who you are. Yeah. That segues perfectly into a topic I want to get to on the other side of the break. Uh, this program has for months talked about issues of segregation. And one person said, Dave, it's real simple. Go have a meal at a restaurant on the east side um, because that will open up your perspectives and your doors and food might take away some of that hesitancy or that fear. Um, and yet, I'm not sure that that's not overly simplistic. When we return from the break, I want to talk more about segregation, about breaking down segregation. You said earlier, yeah, people are all alike, but they still tend to separate into a group over here and a group over there. So we'll get to that after the break. Reverend Kaiser Pointer is here from Agape Fellowship Baptist Church. More to come. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot, and your money will support high-quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED PBS, WNED Create, and WNED PBS Kids. Click the Primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo continuing to talk now with Reverend Kaiser Pointer, former member of the Buffalo School Board. We've been talking a little bit about medical and health issues. He's on the board of ECMC, and he is the pastor at Agape Fellowship Baptist Church. In the neighborhood, on the east side, there is, regardless of the best intentions, a lot of segregation. How the heck do we get over that? Well, um, segregation was intentional. So if we're going to desegregate, it's it going too to have, has to be. Here's the word it again. It has to be intentional. It cannot be a grand idea on on a piece of paper and a plan. You really have to incentivize it. Um, we've got to remove the barriers. Um, we've got to teach people their sameness intentionally. Make sure they know and understand. It's a. It's really difficult for people to know and understand people that they don't know and understand. How much of it is a physical barrier? The housing stock on the east side is more accessible to poor people than the rich housing stock. 
Well, maybe not so much. All right. <laughs> because rent is hyperinflated all, all right. over the city. But what we sh- what we could do is intentionally make sure that the vast majority of people who live here are homeowners. We don't do that. We can incentivize home ownership because what people are paying right now for rent will easily pay Cover a, a mortgage a, and change left over. Yeah. So we could incentivize that. But, you know, we, we will say, well, that's not the function of government. Well, it was the function of government to give us segregation. Why isn't it the function of government to dismantle it intentionally, deliberately, and actually not just talk about it? More than just housing, though, I think it has to be some sort of attitudinal change. And I know you've talked about people recognizing that people are just people. But talking about that and getting that to happen to my mind, are, are, are miles apart. Well, I think um, if we're going to begin with folks, you and I's age, we're wasting time because they're already <laughs> entrenched. They believe what they believe regardless of— They're in their of... ways. Um, they've staked out some political foolishness. Um, you know, we're not talking to them. It's our young people. If you look at kids in the classroom, they don't really care. They have no um, concept of race the way we teach race in the United States. So that's where we begin. And we really need to begin by making sure that the education being accessed is equal for all of them. And then those classrooms, we need to be intentional about making sure that Everyone is represented there. And then we need to sit those kids down at meals regularly. And I think that's probably easy to accomplish in a geography that is diverse. Right. Um, But I think of, and and again, I'm of a different age, uh, I think of my own high school upbringing. And uh, the joke was, oh, yeah, our high school is integrated. We have a Jewish family. Um, the, The town that I was in, suburban Buffalo, was completely, thoroughly, totally white. Yeah, well, that's about intentionality, and that was uh, also about policy because after World War II, we stopped building in cities and began to build out of cities, so we created suburbia. Um, you know, all, everybody knows the story of Levittown. Yeah. Um, and so once you do one Levittown, it's easier to do them everywhere, and that's what we've done. Um, even in the fastest-growing cities in the country, in Houston, in Phoenix, um, those cities are wildly segregated. And I think it's easy to have your integrated classroom where you'll have an exchange of ideas and an understanding of someone else's humanity if you're drawing from a pool that is, to some degree, already integrated. How do you do that in the Elmas and the Orchard Parks and the, I don't know, arcades and Darien? Well, you, you have to make it um, so that people are welcome. And, and part of that is you've got to address economics, and that's the conversation we don't want to have. I mean, in the last Congress, in this—well, I'm sorry, in this Congress. It'll be the last Congress in 15 days. Um, um, so in Congress right now, um, they had an opportunity to pass a $15 federal minimum wage, and they just failed mm. spectacularly. But they don't have a problem— when it comes to giving out billions of dollars to corporate America, but they have a problem making the playing field more even 
by giving people a wage that would begin to be livable. Not livable yet, but better than where we are at the federal minimum. And they failed spectacularly. So we've got to address that, and we've got to be honest, because what we've done, and especially with the onset of the pandemic, is we've concentrated wealth in the hands of even fewer people. And that is obviously a systemic issue, and we have been talking about some of the systemic issues in light of what happened on 514. I want to go back there for a moment. What kind of changes have you seen um, in the community amongst the people you talk to every Sunday morning? Uh, Are they still hurting? Oh, yeah, tremendously. 514, and not just the people in my congregation, but, you know, I move around in this community. From Minnesota to Northland. The congregation's over on Northland. You said you live on Minnesota. Yeah, I live on Minnesota. That's a swath of the east side. I'm on Northland. um, And then, you know, I'm I'm in academia, so I'm at at the medical school. Um, The pain is palpable everywhere you move in this community. I sat on the 514 Compassion Committee. Um, It's just been a tremendously difficult time for all of us. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you are a Western New Yorker, and especially if you are a Buffalonian, this has been tremendously painful. Um, This was an intrusion into our community. um, And it showed us painfully and on a national scale um, just what the results of policy making that was just awful has done and we've not done anything to dismantle those policies. So the systemic stuff is still there but you're also saying that here we are even seven months later that just the physical, mental, emotional toll is still there seven months later. Oh, absolutely. And and that, you know, in the United States, strangely, um, amongst the first world nations, as we call ourselves um, somehow, but at any rate, these industrialized nations, we're the only ones who believe that your head is not part of your body. So we are really good at giving health care to your entire body. It stops at the shoulders. We don't give really good health care to the head. And look, without the head, the rest of the body means nothing. So if I'm not healthy in my mind and in my, in my psyche, then I'm probably just a few weeks from being unhealthy in the rest of my body. And we don't do that well. I think we can argue, though, white, black, orange, whomever, don't necessarily walk in and say, I've got a problem. That access to mental health needs to have a little bit of participant uh, buy-in. I know I'm not blaming the victim yeah. here, but I'm, I'm hoping you can talk about the reluctance to seek this kind of help. Okay, buy-in is one part of it. The other part is access. So the re- there is a historic reluctance amongst. I, I, I can only speak for African Americans. Yeah, go. I'm African American. I've been black my whole life. So <laughs> this I know. I, I didn't notice. And um. In our community, there is a huge and persistent stigmatization of getting your head cared for. Um, You know, often we would see someone in our own families, and we would know that, you know, something's off. And, you know, we would say, there's nothing wrong with her. She's just crazy. Hmm. No, 
That's not what she is. What she is is in need of the kind of care that will render her whole. And we make sure that we don't talk about that because we don't want to admit that, you know, we might need that too. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, people that don't talk about uh, funerals because it reminds them of their own death. Exactly. Yeah. Or they'll say to you, I don't want to talk about death. But they know that the inevitability is sooner or later, we all die. You touched on access, though. What do we need there? We need way more access, not just in the east side, but in all of the United States. There are not enough people who have been trained to help us with our mental health so that we could all have access. It just simply doesn't exist, mostly because we've stigmatized it so long in the United States. All right. The last thing I want to do, I've heard you tell this story before. You and I have talked on numerous occasions. When you were growing up in the Fruit Belt, you had neighbors. You had three Jeffreys. Tell me the story, and I love this story. Tell me the story of the three Jeffreys. Well, you know, I come from a big family, and I'm a boy, and I was the first boy in the family, so I was always the rambunctious, disruptive one. And, of course, boys find other boys to do these things with. So I had three friends, all named Jeffrey. Um, And so my sisters, when they would come to the door asking for me, they would say, Jeffrey's here, and I'd say, which Jeffrey? And they would then decide they needed to identify Jeffrey. So they did. Um, there was there was white Jeffrey because, of course, that's obvious. There was black Jeffrey, again, obvious. And then there was Jeffrey who I often went to synagogue with on Saturday because so he, was, he was Jewish. He was Jewish, And Jeffrey. they would say, it's black Jeffrey, it's white Jeffrey, or it's Jeffrey who's Jewish. And then I know exactly who was at the door. Which Jeffrey was standing at the door. Which Jeffrey was standing at the door. And that also colored how how quickly I moved because, you know, as with all friendships, there is a hierarchy. Yeah. So And, and that changes all the time, oh, too. Oh, it does change. This it, week it might be Jewish Jeffrey. Exactly. Next week it might be black Jeffrey. Exactly. Okay. And it depends on what we were going to get into. Because <laughs> <laughs> boys often have, yeah. you know. A schedule. Special talents that, that <laughs> exactly. they bring. Exactly. Exactly. So bring your mother into the equation. Um, my mother, she always would say, oh, look, um, all I need you guys to do is keep in mind the rules. And she would say, if you can't do it in front of a police officer, skip it. She said, if you can't do it in front of Jesus, skip it. And if you can't do it and be safe, skip it. And she had, well, that was her thing with it. Be safe, be moral, be legal. So one day on the stoop, Jeffrey shows up, and you say to your mom, which Jeffrey is it? And she would say, boy, get out here. <laughs> I'm not your sisters. And, you know, I learned the difference between mom and, you know, Lois, Tammy, Gloria, and Besser. Um, I learned the difference very early, and she would reinforce that. And even up until my mother's death, she would say, I'm your mother. I'm thankful. And Jeffrey is Jeffrey is Jeffrey. That's right. It mattered not to her at all. And mom would fix food for all of us. And she never would say, "Um, it's time for you to eat. She would say, it's time for you all to eat. All right. Reverend Pointer, thanks for this. Thank great, you. Great conversation. Reverend Kaiser Pointer, former member of the Buffalo School Board, Board of ECMC, works with UB, 
and the pastor at Agape Fellowship Baptist Church. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.